Well, this morning we come to the end of this series, but of course not the end of reading our Bibles, but the end of learning how to read our Bibles better. And I've even tried to say that 20 times fast, and it's very difficult. Read our Bibles better, Bibles better. Anyway, we are going to talk today about whether we can take the Bible literally or not. There was a man, A.J. Jacobs, who tried to do that for a year. He tried to take the Bible and live it literally. And he wrote a book about it. And part of the problem he had was trying to live the Old Testament, especially the Law of Moses, literally. And so uh, he even stoned an adulterer, and uh, not to death, but uh, threw a stone at an adulterer, uh, sacrificed animals or attempted to anyway. You can imagine, especially if you were trying to live out the Old Testament law, literally, it would uh, make your life completely different. Uh, pictures of him, he didn't shave the, his side of his face or his, uh, because that's what the law says not to do. And so you can see pictures of him clean shaven after a year, big bushy beard and, and long sideburns and everything. So he tried to do that and made a, a book about it. In fact, it was a New York Times bestseller. In fact, it was made into a television show. And I did watch the television show because I I like the idea. I mean, I'm a pastor, living biblically. Isn't that what we're supposed to do, especially pastors? So I actually did watch the season of the show. It got canceled, and I can see why it wasn't very funny. It was supposed to be a sitcom, and it wasn't funny. But I did like the the idea of the show. And in fact, uh, the idea was kind of neat, too. This man uh, had a life that was uh, down in the dumps. He was at the lowest part in his life, and he turned to the Bible. I mean, that's a great premise of a TV show, isn't it? To turn to the Bible when life is at its lowest. And even his wife was not, uh, I mean, she was an atheist, wasn't really concerned about what he was doing, but she supported him in trying to live his life by the Bible. But like I said, it wasn't very funny. There was a, a priest and a rabbi, and they did meet in the bar often on the show. And so it wasn't a very fun show, and so that's why I got canceled. But think about that idea of taking the Bible and living your life, literally obeying and doing everything that it says. You might think, that's what, well, that's what I do. That's, what, uh, that's how I read the Bible. That's what I do already. But as we look at it, We don't literally read the Bible, live it out. And so what I want to help you with this morning is how do we interpret the Bible, live the Bible, if we don't do it literally? And what does that mean? So we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, Before we do that, I want to uh, tell you about how uh, the early church especially often tried to interpret the Bible because it was difficult to read parts of Scripture and know how to obey it, live it out, when it seemed bizarre, it it seemed uh, unusual. And so what they would do is that they would try to find a deeper spiritual meaning to the words, verses, and stories of the Bible. So that even though when you read a story and you kind of understand it and it has words that make sense and sentences that make sense they would take those words and give them deeper spiritual meaning. Let me give you an example. You all know the story of the the Good Samaritan. I don't have to tell it to you again about the man who was robbed and how he laid on the side of the road and how a priest came by and a Levite came by, but it was the Samaritan who helped him and took him to an inn and had 
the innkeeper take care of him. So you know that story. Well, one of the, the church fathers, Origen, when he taught this story, when he preached on this story, he looked for the deeper spiritual meaning in the story. You might have thought it was a story about uh, being kind. You might have thought it was a story about helping our neighbor. Uh, but he saw something much deeper and spiritual in that story. Uh, to him, the man who was robbed, that was really Adam. Uh, Jerusalem, from where he came, was paradise. Jericho, the road on which he went, was the world. The priest was the law. The Levite was the prophets. The Samaritan was Christ. The donkey that the Samaritan put the man on was Christ's physical body. The inn is the church. And the Samaritan's promise to uh, give the innkeeper any money that he needed to take care of this man, that promise is the second coming of Christ. Did you know that? Did, did you find all that when you read that story? <laughs> do you see what the problem is if you do that? I, you're smart enough to figure out very quickly how you can read anything in the scripture and it can mean anything in the entire world you want it to mean. And that was the problem. They would take things like this story, which is easy to understand, or more difficult parts of the scripture that are hard to obey or live out, and give it new Meaning, deeper meaning, spiritual meaning. But when you're giving it deeper and spiritual meaning, your deeper and spiritual meaning can be completely different from my deeper spiritual meaning. And so it was obvious that uh, this was not the way to interpret the Bible. Although there are places in Scripture where there are allegories used and where things are, uh, are symbols or are pointing to deeper truths. So I don't want to dismiss it completely because it is in the Bible, but it is not the way to come to the Bible. But you can see why someone might want to do that. Again, reading a verse that says that you are to stone adulterers to death, wouldn't it be uh, easier to find a deeper meaning, like maybe uh, stoning sin in your life to death and getting rid of sin? I mean, that sounds easier, and that helps you to understand that verse and to live that verse out without doing it literally. So I see where it comes from. But I think there's a better way that we can read the Bible, and that is to interpret it literally, to look at the history, to actually look at the words and what they mean, and to look at the context in which they were written. From there, you can learn what God wants us to know about Him, about us. You can learn the lessons, the laws, the commands that he gave to uh, the Israelites, to us, you can live it out and you can obey it if you come to it in a literal way, not a spiritualized, allegorical way. But having said that, that doesn't mean that we don't understand that when you read scripture, there's figures of speech, there's uh, ways that words are used that aren't literal. And so that's what I want us to help us with this morning. And two things in particular that are difficult when we come to reading the Word of God. And the first one is a simile. But let me, I forgot about this too. This is the best way to interpret the Bible. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless facts of the context 
indicate otherwise. So I think that's the best way to read your Bible, to live it out. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless facts of the context indicate otherwise. But there are two particular figures of speech in Scripture. There's plenty of them, but again, it would sound like English class if we started to talk about all the different kinds of figures of speech and using, see examples from the Scripture I feel like in some of these uh, lessons over the last couple of weeks, I've bored you enough. So I'm not going to make it like English class. But there are two that are very common and that do take a special understanding if we're going to read the Bible. Uh, The first one are similes and metaphors. And you know what these are. Again, if you've taken any English class, you recognize them when you read. A simile is a figure of speech that makes a comparison with the words like or as. And a metaphor also kind of makes a comparison, but doesn't use those words. It mentions one word, but refers to something else. And if those confuse you, here's an example that will make sense to you. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Solomon writes about Abishag. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. That's a metaphor. The rest are similes. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Ladies, are you flattered? Or if if your husband said this to you, your lips are like a scarlet cord, and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. They feed among the lilies. I'm sure that was meant to be a compliment to Abishag. Uh, Obviously, you can't read it literally. You want to see this beautiful woman Literally, if you took these verses that way, wow, what a looker. Isn't she beautiful? And this artist also added some other verses. You can't really see them, but the the rest of her body is made up from some other verses from Song of Solomon. That's why Winnie the Pooh's there with the, the honeypot and everything else. But anyway... Obviously, you can't take those verses literally. If you did, this is what she would look like. That's a figure of speech. Now, this one might be a little bit easier to look at. I don't know. It's still just as bizarre. But let's think about it for a moment. Again, there's supposed to be a compliment, but it's not always clear. I mean, even as I read it, and if I think of my beautiful wife, I don't know how her neck could be like the Tower of David. I don't even really know what that's supposed to mean, really. I mean, I guess it's long, maybe. I mean, we do think of sometimes with uh, women with long necks as being beautiful. I don't know, maybe it was a symbol of strength. That's why the warrior shields are on there. Uh, So when you read it, you can't read it literally. And you do have to try to understand what the comparison is. How are doves like beautiful eyes? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, It was obvious to Solomon. Maybe they are... Uh, soft, and 
I don't know. I'm not going to try to figure out what Solomon was trying to say, okay? Again, I imagine the, uh, the shorn sheep, they're white and they're bright and there's no teeth missing. I mean, that, that, that was a great thing, I guess, back then. It probably was. They didn't have the dentistry and the orthodontics we have today. So if you found a woman who had all her teeth, you found a beauty queen, okay? So, uh, and uh, anyway, so this is a, these are figures of speech. I guess it's kind of obvious when we read the Song of Solomon and read these verses. We don't try to take them literally. And, but even though we know what a woman looks like, and even though we may know what a beautiful woman looks like, honestly, it is hard for me to understand exactly how Solomon was complimenting Abishag. So when we come to another verse where there are similes in the book of Revelation, you can see why it's hard to interpret it. Revelation chapter 9, John writes about some locusts. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions. And we read verses like this in Revelation and we try to imagine what this hideous beast would be. And uh, I don't know, you read that with all those similes, you saw the words like, it had this like this and this like that. Remember, Abishag didn't look too good either when we read her, <laughs> her description literally. And so sometimes people try to make a drawing that looks literally like what is said. And here's just one example. I looked at many of them. They all look weird. They all look kind of stupid. They all don't look like anything very menacing or scary. I think the artists who are trying to draw this thing are trying to be too literal in what they are drawing and what they are understanding. And so even as you read the verses, it, it would be hard to imagine. I mean, it was hard enough to imagine Abishag. So try to imagine something that we've never experienced before. Try to imagine a, this demon locust. I, I don't know what it looks like. Others have thought about it and looked at it and thought maybe it's not something so menacing and so bizarre looking. Uh, you know, maybe it's something like this that John saw. And maybe it was more like a helicopter. And if you think about what he describes, it does kind of sound like a helicopter, especially as you see this artist and how he describes the words that are used to make the helicopter. But I don't know. That's sort of my point. When we come to some passages of Scripture, we can't take them literally. We need to understand, especially with similes and metaphors, these are making comparisons, trying to help us understand what some person is like or what some thing is like. And so as you read them, read them carefully. Because they are comparisons, you have to compare them, and there may be difference of interpretation of what comparison is being made. You know, how are eyes like doves? How are the, the, the teeth of this... Uh, locusts like lion's teeth. As I said last week, when it comes to the time these locusts are unleashed from the abyss, it'll be obvious uh, what they are. And their description will become obvious to all who know Revelation and who see these locusts. So when it comes to figures of speech, especially similes and metaphors, don't take them literally and read them trying to understand 
the comparison. But I want to talk about one that's even more difficult for Christians and readers of the Bible, and that's hyperbole. And you use this, and you understand it, and you see it used commonly in our language, but it's, it's exaggeration to make a point. You, know, you may just say to your kids, I've told you a million times to take out the trash. Well, you haven't told them a million times, <laughs> maybe lots of times, but you're exaggerating. But you're making a point, aren't you? Why do you say that when it hasn't been? You don't count the exact number of times and say, I've told you 793 times to take out the trash. No, you exaggerate to make a point. A million is a lot. So you're basically saying, I've told you a lot. I've told you many times. That doesn't have the same impact, does it? That's why we exaggerate and use hyperbole. It, it makes a greater impact. It's, it's saying something uh, with heightened words, exaggerated words, to drive home a point. And Jesus does this a lot. And this is where it is sometimes difficult to understand how to obey what Jesus says. Paul uses a, an easy example to understand in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 8. He says, I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. Do you think Paul really had a mask on and, and uh, had a sword and went to churches and robbed them and, and took their money and gave it to the Corinthians? No, he didn't do that. He's exaggerating. He's making a point. He's trying to, he could have just told the Corinthians, Corinthians, I, I used a lot of resources to help you out. I could have used them in other churches. I mean, he could have said that. But that's kind of, yeah, okay, Paul, we hear you. It doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't uh, hit home as hard as when you exaggerate and use this figure of speech and say, I robbed other churches to help you out. That has more force to it, and that's why we use it. That's why Jesus used it. Here's an example. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. You say you obey the Bible literally? <laughs> I have... Never seen any Christian live this one out literally, okay? Why not? Because it's not to be taken literally. It's an exaggeration. It's a hyperbole. I think when we read this one, we kind of understand that. That uh, Christians shouldn't be cutting arms off and gouging eyes out. I mean, it just doesn't... I mean, it seems kind of obvious. That wouldn't be what Jesus is telling us to do. But when you read it, and if you read it literally, and if you wanted to obey it literally, that's what you would do. So some of the verses, though, aren't so obvious that Jesus uses. What about these? Luke 6.30. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Now that one's not as obvious as hyperbole. You could probably... It would cost you a lot, but you could live this one out literally, couldn't you? I mean, if someone asked you for something, sure, take it. 
Someone comes and steals from you, no big deal, go ahead and take it. You could do that. And you see how this was a little bit trickier? I mean, is that what Jesus is telling us to do? If someone comes and asks for something, we just give it to them? Someone takes something, we just say, have it, but we don't care? Or is, there, is this more of a hyperbole, an exaggeration? Uh, another one that's maybe difficult to understand. Jesus says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. When was the last time you saw someone go to court being sued and they said, oh good, I'm glad I'm being sued. You want a million dollars? Here's two million dollars. Enjoy it. So, what is Jesus saying then? Can we take it literally? Again, I don't think we do. I think these are hyperboles. They are exaggerations. So what is Jesus saying? About sin, he wants to make a point. Jesus could have said sin is bad. Okay? And we would have heard it, and his hearers would have heard it and said, okay. Does that make the same point as saying that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out? I mean, the last part of his phrase is truthful. It is better to be maimed and go to heaven than it is to have your body intact and go to hell. Jesus is telling us how serious sin is and how we should eradicate it from our life and take it that serious. That's a pretty serious thing to do. We often have a nonchalant attitude towards sin. Oh, sin is just part of me. Sin is just part of everybody. Uh, that's just who I am. Jesus has forgiven me. Grace has covered it. Sin isn't that bad. I think Jesus is telling us by exaggeration, sin's bad. And we should go to great lengths to eradicate it from our life. If we had that attitude that we would be willing to maim ourselves, to get sin out of our life, I think we would live our life differently. When uh, uh, sin, even a, a sliver of it came into our mind, we would get rid of it immediately. The things that we would say, the things that we would see, we'd be so careful about it. We'd be so careful to obey God. And Jesus wants us to have that attitude towards sin. And a great way to tell us to have it is to exaggerate. When he talks about giving things away and, and giving more to those who sue us, he's telling us the, the heart attitude to have. Didn't Jesus say to love our neighbors as ourself? Didn't Jesus say to treat others as we would have them to treat us? And these are examples that are exaggerated. If you're a generous person, you are going to give generously. And that's what we're called to be. It may not be literally everybody who asks you for something, you give them. It may not literally be that if someone takes something from you, you just let it go. But you're not going to be a person who's stingy. You're not going to be a person whose first response is always no. You're not going to be a, a, a person when someone comes, the first thing you're, you're thinking about is get this person out of my way and I'm not going to give you anything. I'm a, you're not going to be a miser, a, a Scrooge McDuck. I mean, that's not how we are as Christians. We are generous people. And we are to consider others. The verse after this one talks about if someone wants to go a mile, you go two miles with them. 
So Jesus, again, is talking about consider other people and uh, think about them. When someone's suing you, they're suing you for a reason. They have a, something against you. Well, maybe think about what that is. Instead of just being defensive automatically, think about that, what they're saying, what they, what, how they feel, what's going on in their life. So you see, Jesus is, again, making a point, exaggerating, but showing us how serious sin is, also showing us how generous we as Christians are to be. Again, he could have said, be generous. He could have said, sin is bad. It wouldn't have made us stop and think. It wouldn't have made as much of an impact if he had done so. As I said earlier, this is the end of this series on how to study the Bible better. I want to challenge you in a couple of ways and take a step back. Because I know in what we've studied, it's sometimes taking a microscope to the scripture. It's talking about minutiae. It does sound like an English class. It sounds like a history class. It's important and it's helpful, but I do want to take a step back and remind you what's most important is that you're reading your Bible. Whether you get confused about a figure of speech, whether you get tripped up on an English translation, whether you quite don't understand whether this type of genre is narrative or whether it's apocalyptic, that in the end doesn't matter. I've shared all that with you because it is important. And if we understand it and practice it, it can help us to understand the Bible more, help us to live it out more. But I don't want you to get tripped up on those things. I want the most important thing for you to understand is to read your Bible. Sometimes we hear people say that they wish God would speak to them. And I hear critics of the Christianity say, well, if God would just speak to me, then I believe there's a God. Well, Harry, he has spoken. It's right here. And so that's what I want you to understand. It is more than in English words. It's more than uh, a story. It's more than what we've talked about. It's God speaking to you. It's God speaking to me. So if... God is speaking, I mean, wouldn't you want to hear God speak? You know, if I said, you know, at 1 o'clock this afternoon, God is going to be here and he's going to speak. Well, you'd be pretty ready to hear that, wouldn't you? Well, you came this morning at 9 o'clock and God is speaking right here. We've had some scripture that's read. I've read some scripture. That's God speaking. I would wish more of us, and myself included, would, would understand reading the Bible. It's not just... Reading like we read a magazine. It's reading to hear God speak to us. And because of that, there's so many things we do in our life every day. And we don't have the same devotion to reading the Bibles and listening to God. For example, our phones. What if we treated our Bibles like we do our cell phones? I find this even kind of ironic because you can have your Bible on your cell phone, okay? But even before, we, you know, people with cell phones don't leave them, don't go anywhere without them. And I do this. I, I never leave 
a place without making sure I haven't left my phone behind. I always check my pockets or check my car. And if for an instant I think I have left it, I panic. One thing, they're expensive. I don't want to have to replace it. And the insurance is expensive, so I don't have them on my phones, okay? So if I lose that, it's expensive. You know what's in that phone? It's got all the, the contacts. It's got all kinds of pictures. It's got uh, all kinds of things in there. I don't want to lose it. Maybe you're like this. One of the first things I do in the morning is look at my phone. It's not the first thing. But again, why would I do that? To see if someone texted me. Also, I get my emails to my phone. And so it is true. Some mornings, first thing, there's someone from church, someone from my family, telling me something. Why can't we have that same attitude with our Bibles? Can you imagine carrying your Bible around if you left it somewhere, panicking because you've left it? Maybe spending as much time with our Bibles as we do our phones. Again, I see so many people just... Uh, you know, when you have those down times or you have those times in between times. You know, the other day I took the car to be inspected. So what do you do when you're sitting there waiting for your car to be inspected? They had magazines. They've got the newspaper. I had my phone out. I was looking at my phone. You know, I, I shared this before with you too. Uh, sometimes, I've always hated commercials on television. So sometimes now, even when the commercial comes on, I just look at my phone and ignore the commercial. There's more important things or more interesting things on my phone than there is in the commercial, for sure, okay? So we use our phones a lot. Why don't we use our Bibles as much? Just a couple of other ways to look at it. I mean, do you look at your news feed on your phone more than you do your Bible? Do you, watch, or do you look at Facebook more than you do your Bible? So this is my challenge to you. I might be talking to you and you say, I don't even have a phone. <laughs> and I don't, I don't even know what Facebook is. I, I never get my news from the, the news feeds on my phone. Well, let me think, then if that's not you, then this is you. Every day, you do something that you do every day. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe you brush your teeth every day. Maybe you eat every day. You probably do, don't you? <laughs> You sleep every day. There's something that you do every day, and there's probably a few things that you do every day. This is my challenge to you. Do not do those things until you have read your Bible. Or don't end your day by doing those things until you've read your Bible. So if you're going to brush your teeth, think about this. Before you pick up the toothbrush, have you picked up your Bible? Maybe you're not a morning person. That's too early. You know, you, you can't get your head around the Bible before you can get it, the toothbrush in your mouth. Well, that's fine. Maybe you brush your teeth at the end of the day, too. Don't brush your teeth. Don't pull the sheets back on your bed. Something you do every day unless you've read your Bible. Again, not because reading the Bible is going to get you gold stars with Jesus. Not because your pastor told you but because God wants to say something to you. Don't you want to hear from Him? Read your Bible 
before you do those things, or at least before the end of the day. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, and we do, Lord, want to hear you speak to us. So my prayer is simple this morning, Lord. I pray that we would take your word seriously, that we would want to hear from you, we would want to know what you have to say, and that we would want to live it out in our lives. Lord, we confess and ask for your forgiveness when we allow other things in our life to be more important than our time with you or our relationship with you. I confess, Lord, a lot of time is spent on a phone, wasting it, when I could just go to another part on the phone and there's your word and can read it. So I pray for myself, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that our day would be filled with time with you. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.